We will be continuing again today in Exodus. We are going to wrap up the plagues. This will be the end of the plagues. Uh, so we'll be looking today at the plague of darkness and then the tenth and final plague. Our scripture passage today will come from Exodus 10, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Now we will also be looking at parts of chapter 11 and 12, but this will be our reading for the day. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Put your little, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go up with this. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he said he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on that day, you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Pharaoh wouldn't know how true those words were. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask this morning that your spirit might give us ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts eager to learn. And may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be faithful to your word in Christ's name. Amen. In 1875, a poet named William Ernest Henley published a poem that expressed ways to cope with the circumstances of our lives. The poem is titled Invictus, and it ends with these famous lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those last two lines in today's culture usually represent some heroic and self-sufficient stand against evil and injustice without a mention of God or without any idea of submission to God. The journalist Daniel Hannon called the poem a final and terrible act of defiance. Horror might have awaited the author, but he would go there on his terms, leaving the spittle sliding down his maker's face. Now, Henley's poem has inspired many peoples. In the 1980s, the poem encouraged, for example, former South African President Nelson Mandela throughout his dark days of imprisonment. Clint Eastwood used the title uh, for his film about the South African rugby team. Sadly, it has also influenced people like Timothy McVeigh. 
responsible for the deaths of 168 men, women, and children, and the injuries of 800 more. McVeigh scribbled these words out and handed it to authorities as his last words before his execution. Invictus, his final words. Being the captain of your soul produces disastrous results, and often those results spill over into the lives of those around you. And that's what we see with Pharaoh today. Like McVeigh, his actions have dire consequences on the lives of others. Before we get into today's text, we're going to revisit a few verses from our previous sermon um, earlier in chapter 10. In verse 3 it says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land. Two things I want you to notice here. The first is the question to Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? All Pharaoh had to do was acknowledge who God was. In turn, this would have meant that he put the false gods of Egypt away, away from himself. Of course, it also meant that Pharaoh would have to deny that he himself was a god. But nowhere in the text does it say that God desired to take Pharaoh's kingdom away. It doesn't say that God would take his riches away. It doesn't say that God would take his country away. God was not after Pharaoh's riches. He was after Pharaoh's heart. After all, according to the scriptures, God appointed Pharaoh to be the king of Egypt. Hear the words from Daniel 2. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God was after Pharaoh's heart, not his kingdom. And remember that God told Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very reason, so that all the world would know that I am God. Not Pharaoh, not the false deities of men, but Yahweh. Now it's easy for us to assume that God didn't give Pharaoh a choice because he hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh was equally, equally responsible for hardening his own heart. It goes back and forth. Pharaoh could have just as easily confessed Yahweh as Lord. God's plan would have still come to fruition. The question for Pharaoh is a question perhaps we should not let ourselves stray far from. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, how long will I refuse to humble myself? Now this warning came to Moses as a Moses is announcing the next plague. 
the plague would come if Pharaoh wouldn't humble himself. Did Pharaoh humble himself? Of course not. Notice what Moses says about the locust in verse 5. They shall cover the land. And in verse 13, if we were to read that, we would see that verse 13 says, When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locust. And finally, in verse 15, we read about the locust. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. So we have two references here to the plague of locusts. And we have references to darkness. So you can see how this plague is building on the plague that we're about to look at. The plague of darkness. Now there's an old saying in our country. Only two things in life that are sure. Everybody's heard this, right? Death and taxes. But I submit to you there are more things than those two that are sure. Think about this for a minute. What is one thing that you know that will happen every day? Not just for you, but for almost everyone alive on the whole planet. With the possible exception of those way far north. The sunrise and the sunset. You can count on it every day. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we might wake up and see clouds <laughs> and get a little bit depressed. But the sun has still risen. It's just the clouds. And certain times of year here in Florida, we get the fog. But the sun rose and the sun set. And it does it every day. So if you were to set out to start your own religion... with your own version of God's, to gain an audience, you have to convince people that you're onto something. You would need something surefire, something that you could count on every day to see, that people could see some evidence. You say, see, I'm right. See, I'm right. Well, whatever that thing might be, like Egypt, you probably should make that a god, like the sun. And Egypt made the sun god, Amon-Ri, the chief god, the god of all gods. And now God turns out the lights. He turns out the lights on Egypt. So dark, people can't leave their house. They can't move about. Now, I don't know if any of you have experienced darkness like that or not. Some of you... I notice occasionally on Sunday try to experience that darkness and you close your eyes and I mean I don't know if you're experiencing darkness or just you're gone. You can see everything from up here. Um, I, I recall when I was in the Air Force in the fire service uh, I frequently rode on what was called the rescue truck. We were kind of like the prima donnas in the firehouse. We were, that's rescue, the rescue, rescue, rescue. It's probably why I wanted to be on it. I don't know. But um, we would be responsible for, if there was an aircraft incident, we would have to know how all the um, ejection seats work. 
all the, most of the military aircraft have an ejection seat. If there's an incident on the ground and you're going to go in there and drag a pilot out, you better know how that ejection seat works or you and that pilot are going through the roof, so to speak. If it was a building fire, the rescue guys are going in and they're going to find the victims. So you have to go to a special school for that. And in this school, I couldn't tell you what it looks like today because I never got to see it. I only got to experience it. There's this large aircraft hangar with tunnels underneath. So you put all your gear on, you put your breathing tank on and your mask, and they turn you loose in these tunnels with your partner, and you're going to conduct searches and locate victims. And in, to make sure that you can't see, they put this black cloth over your mask, and it is black. It is terrifyingly black. And I learned the way to deal with that terror was to simply close my eyes. And I know that sounds silly. I thought it was silly, but it worked. Because the eyes are open, they expect to see. If you close the eyes, the mind says, oh, I'm not supposed to see. Really simple trick. But that darkness if you haven't experienced it, I, I can't explain it to you any better than that. This is the darkness that God brought on Egypt. Now, days of darkness would scare us too. But it certainly had a greater effect on the Egyptians because they worshipped the sun. In a study of ancient Egyptian religion, uh, author Stephen Quirk says, before we can learn anything about ancient Egypt, we need to know where the sun stood in Egyptian society. As I've mentioned, the Egyptians worshipped Amon-Ri, the sun god, the most important god in the religion. They have writings where his words are said, I am the great god who came into being by myself. I made up his name. I have no rival among gods. Remember, the Egyptians have 80-some gods. So this is the big boss god, so it were. The Egyptians thought this, that the sun god actually made them. They would sing unique god. They would sing hymns to the sun disk, which was the image for this god. There is no one else like him. You alone shaped the earth the way you want. All peoples, herds, flocks, everything on the ground that walks and everything in the sky that flies. Every morning, the sun rising in the east was a reminder of Amon-Ri's power to give life. Notice all them things they credited to Amon-Ri are things that God attacked in the plagues. Sunset was a sign of death and the grave. So here it is. There in, in their world, their God rose every morning and died every night. And resurrected himself again the next day. Every day. Every day. Death, resurrection. And Pharaoh too worshipped the sun. Just like his people did. And more than that, the people thought of him as the son of Amon-Ri. The personification of the sun god. Egypt's king was also their god. He kept the universe in order. 
Again, Quirk says that the heart of the society is a special relationship between the divine father figure of the sun god who is in charge of everything and his only child on the earth, the king of Egypt. During his reign, each king was the only one who could be seen as the living representation of the sun god. Wow, that sounds similar. Ancient Near Eastern stories are very similar to biblical narratives, and there's very good reason for that. We're not going to cover them today, but if it's something that bothers you, makes you queasy, talk to me afterwards, and I will ease your mind. Pharaoh was to be seen as a god by the people. He had all the power, and he would live forever. He gave them light and was the master of their hearts. They would even pray to Pharaoh, Listen to me, O rising sun, whose beauty lights up the two lands. O solar disk of humanity, which takes away the darkness from Egypt. Thy nature is the same as that of your heavenly father, Re. And God plunges them into darkness. The ultimate assault by God on the religion of the Egyptians. An assault on their most powerful, most highly exalted God. Yet the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen had light. God had separated light from darkness. Just like at the creation. He had set a boundary for the darkness. And its boundaries were where the Egyptians lived. Imagine if you could, now you can close your eyes, that there was intense darkness for three days. There would be much fear. We all would get the sense that the natural order of the universe has been turned upside down. And that a key part of living on this earth had been taken away. Long before three days were over, people would start to realize what might happen. If this keeps up, there'll be no food. Plants need sunlight to survive. Animals need plants to survive. Everything we depend on would be gone. Deep, total darkness, like the kind God put on the Egyptians. It would make our senses, we would be sensory deprived those who struggle with depression would struggle harder. Those of us who haven't struggled with depression would begin to struggle with it. And a feeling of doom would dominate the thoughts of, men's, of men. <clears throat> Yet in this darkness, God showed mercy to Egypt. He relented, and the deep darkness was gone. And Pharaoh summons Moses once again. And he basically told the Hebrews to scram, get out of here. But you have to leave the livestock behind. And of course, we saw Moses decline the offer, and Pharaoh threatens his life. In doing this, Pharaoh unwittingly sent away his last opportunity at redemption. Moses was God's man. God's mediator. Moses is the one coming to Pharaoh, asking the question on behalf of God. When will you humble yourself? When will you submit to Yahweh? 
Pharaoh dismisses him and threatens his life. He essentially says to God, get away from me. Leave me alone. I don't care who you are. Pharaoh wants his slaves to return. Pharaoh wants his gods to remain intact. And above all, Pharaoh would not humble himself. And he continued to believe that he was the true son of the true God. His level of idolatry was boundless. Unaffected by all that he had witnessed so far. Can you imagine how dark his heart must have been? How deeply entrenched in the idolatry he was. Now it's easy for us to think that idolatry is a thing of the past, but we know better, don't we? John Calvin made the statement that our hearts are idle factories. Origen, a theologian who lived in the third century, wrote, For each person, God is what they honor above all else, what they admire and love above all else. By Origen's definition, we all worship idols because we respect, admire, cherish, and love things other than God, more than God. Not other things. It's okay to love other things. It's okay to have these feelings about other things. But when those things take the place of God, we've entered into idolatry. So the question is, what is it we love the most? Who is our most important God? Philip Graham Riken writes, Like the ancient Egyptians, postmodern Americans have many gods, but our supreme deity seems to be self. We honor, admire, and love ourselves more than anyone or anything else. For an example of this type of idolatry, consider one of America's most beloved poets, Walt Whitman. One of his famous writings, The Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and sing myself. The song of me, the rising from bed and meeting the sun, divine am I inside and out. And I make holy whatever I touch. If I worship one thing more than another, it shall be me, my own body. I don't think anybody here thinks like that or wakes up like that every day. But I do venture a guess that most of us wrestle with something akin to that. And when we're tempted to wander and chase after things that ultimately cannot fulfill, when you're tempted to turn to ourselves to solve all of our problems, to brag on our accomplishments, to pursue our desires with no thought of the merciful God who has given us everything, it's probably time to humble ourselves. It's time to discard the notion that we are the captains of our own souls. He made us to be a part of his new creation. And that creation has no room for the likes of the hard-hearted pharaohs who refuse to yield to the triune God. Now, before we move to the next plague, the scriptures have something sandwiched in here. And you know what it is, and you're familiar with the story. So we won't spend a long time in the story today, but there's some significant points to bring out before we move to the final plague. 
At the beginning of Genesis, Genesis, Exodus chapter 11, God tells Moses, there's going to be one more plague, and then Pharaoh will let the people go. And Moses takes these words to Pharaoh, and the plague will involve the death of every firstborn in Egypt, except for the Hebrews. This includes firstborn children as well as livestock. And then chapter 12 takes a little bit of time to dive into something new. God is doing something new. The darkness is representing decreation. It's taking Egypt back in time. Listen to the first verses of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each person can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Now we're going to notice a couple of things here. Verse 2 says, this will be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God is giving them a new timeline, a brand new. This is how you will keep time from now on. He's starting something new. It's the creation of a nation. Meanwhile, he's destroying Israel or Egypt. Notice in verse 5 the directions regarding the lamb. It must be without blemish. It must be a male. You see that, right? You see the foreshadowing of Christ in this picture of the lamb. Note that the lambs are to be slain at twilight. Right before the darkness of night. Think about what we saw. Darkness. Finally, the Hebrew people are told to smear the blood of the slain lambs onto the sides of the door and onto the lintel of the doors of their homes. So why the lamb? Why blood on the doors? Well, hear the words of Scripture. Chapter 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all. All the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is going to be separating the Hebrew people, his people, from the Egyptian people. Be a clear division. God's people will receive mercy when the destroyer comes. God will see the blood and know that this house 
is where his people are. The Egyptian people will receive judgment. There will be no lamb blood on the door or the lentils marking them as safe from death in the dark of the night. Now I want to show you something I find fascinating from um, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are at. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you and no plague will befall you. So we're going to spend just a couple minutes here focusing on that one word. Passover. The Hebrew word is Pesach. In verse 12, God says he will pass through the land. And in verse 13, we see the word Passover or Pesach. So God will pass through the land of Egypt and pass over the houses marked with blood. Here's a really good example of how our modern Bible translations skew the true meaning of the word for us. Until William Tyndale translated the Bible into a language for the people, the word Passover was not translated, the word Pesach was not translated as Passover. Passover is an English term used since the Latin Vulgate in the time of the Tyndale translation. Now, I was first introduced to this um, through readings of uh, Dr. Meredith Klein, who is a Hebrew scholar at Westminster Seminary, both Westminster Philly and Westminster Cal. And I, like so many others, find some of the things that he has written deeply theologically profound. And what he showed me in regards to this is something that I'd never heard before. So I set out kind of to test his hypothesis. It's what they train us to do. You, you hear something from the Bible, but you've you got to investigate it. Is that, is that true? And it doesn't matter if it's Meredith Klein or Keith Staten or Mike Woodyard, somebody that you know and respect. You have the obligation to try to figure it out, look at it. And, and, and if you find a difference, then sort it out. Well, you're telling me all this. How should it be translated, Mike? Well, I'm glad you asked. The word only appears five other times in the Old Testament. Twice in the book of 2 Samuel. The word is translated as lame or limp. Now, does that fit with the Exodus passage? God will limp over the houses with blood on the doorpost. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. The word is used twice in the book of 1 Kings during the challenge between Elijah, Baal's prophets, and the people. In this section, Elijah challenged the people of Israel to worship the true God of Israel instead of the Baals. Now here the Hebrew word gets translated as waver. Basak gets translated as waver. As if the Hebrew people are going back and forth. Oh, I'm going to worship Yahweh. Oh, I'm going to worship Baal. In reality, they had a foot in each camp. They were stationary. Stationary worshiping Yahweh and stationary worshiping Baal. Covering all their bets. So, does that make sense? Let's see. God will waver over the houses with the blood. 
God will waver over the houses with blood? I don't think that makes much sense either, does it? We only have one use of the word left. Perhaps we'll find the answer there. Isaiah 31. Hear the words of the Lord. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble. And he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. it will, he will spare it and rescue it. In that last verse, verse 5 is our answer. Like birds hovering. That's how the ancients translate Pesach in Exodus. That is the correct context for the Passover of Exodus. God himself hovering at the door of the marked homes with the sacrificial blood. God himself standing at the doorway to keep the destroyer out of the Hebrew home. Let's talk about the doorpost and the lintel. Why there? Why did God instruct the people to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost and on the lintel? There's a couple of images to be seen here. First, let's remember Egypt's big god, Amon-Ri, the sun god, the ultimate god of Egypt, the so-called father of Pharaoh. Remember I told you the image for Amon-Ri was a winged disc designed to look like the sun. The winged sun disc, the image of Amon-Ri, was placed on the lintel of the doorways in Egyptian homes. Once again, Yahweh will defeat Amon-Ri. Every house in Egypt that night would become a death house. And Amon-Ri would be helpless to help his people against the judgment of Yahweh. Now another image from the Old Testament. Doorways, gates, city gates, places of entrance. These are the places in the Old Testament where the elders would gather. These are the places where judgment took place. These are the places where teaching took place. God would later instruct Moses in Exodus 37 that at the tabernacle's entrance, that's where God instructed Moses, at the entrance to the tabernacle. Likewise, atoning sacrifices were to be received at the tabernacle's entrance. Israel would be instructed to write the law on the doorpost of their homes, likely serving a dual purpose, reminding them that their households were under the covenant of God. 
as well as establishing a means as a place of judgment. So the doorpost served as a symbol of a place of judgment and sacrifice. Therefore, that's why God's put the blood, the sacrificial blood, on the doorpost. So the Pesach, or what we call Passover, is, is not simply a motion of God passing over or limping over or wavering. It's action, a shielding action in which God plants himself or hovers over the door, protecting the occupants from death, from the destroyer. It's no surprise that we find in the Gospels, both Mark and Matthew, as Christ was on the cross, dying, at about the sixth hour, noon, the brightest time of the day, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. As Christ breathed his last, uttered his last words. You see, the Passover, the Pesach, is a picture of Christ standing at the doorway as Yahweh, protecting us from his own divine judgment. God did not pass over the cross. Instead, he poured out the fullness of his wrath onto the place of judgment, the doorway where Christ stood, where nailed to a cross, He hovered over us and stood in our place. The true Pesach Lamb, the unblemished Lamb whose bones were not broken. His blood poured out as the atoning sacrifice. The wrath of God meant to destroy sinners inflicted on Christ as he shielded us from the wrath. I mentioned to you the Psalms and their connection to this last time. Psalm 2 concludes with the words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Pharaoh could have simply repented and humbled himself before the triune God. He could have avoided this dreadful judgment. He could have prevented so much misery for his people. He could have sought refuge under the protection of the true God, the true King, his hard heart, his pride, his desire to indulge himself and maintain power and authority came at a tremendous cross. Tremendous cost. Let me leave you with this this morning. At the heart of the city of London is the Charing Cross. All distances around the city are measured from the central point of the cross. Locals would just simply refer to it as the cross. One day, a child became lost in the middle of in the busy city, and a police officer comes along to try to render aid to the child. Try to help the boy find his way home. So, like police officers do, he asks a lot of questions. He's used to this, he's used to asking questions, trying to get information from people. He wasn't having much success with the distraught little boy. He just couldn't figure it out. No clues as to what part of town the boy might live in. 
the boy's too distraught. And with tears streaming down the little boy's face, he said to the police officer, if you can get me to the cross, I think I can find my way home from there. What a great description of the Christian life. The cross is the starting point of our new life in Christ. But it is also a place we must return again and again and again to keep our bearings. Do not try to captain your own soul. Darkness comes into our lives. And sometimes it is because of our doing. And when that happens, we need to repent and humble ourselves. Sometimes darkness comes through events that we had no part of. Yet it still comes, leaving us feeling helpless, even hopeless at times. It's important to remember in the Exodus story, God was at work in that darkness. And he's there with you, standing in the doorway to protect you. Our souls are meant to take shelter in Christ, not in ourselves. Now hear the good news of the gospel. Hear the light of the world in these closing words from Isaiah and the New Testament. A word to the ancient Israelites and a word for you and I. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and though the, through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, if you are his, to the kingdom of his beloved son. Oh God, we give thanks for your word. We pray that these words might reach into our heart, that your spirit might mend and shape and bend and help us to become more passionate followers of our Savior Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.